Well, we are so glad you're here today. I'm so glad you're here today. Can you turn this down a little bit? By the way, I feel like I'm like, power. Anyway. <laughs> okay, anyway, I'm super excited. We are launching a, uh, a brand new series today uh, called Encountering Jesus. And uh, for the next six weeks, as Tammy mentioned, we are going to be walking through the biblical book of Luke. And we're going to be getting to know uh, the, the life, the ministry, the, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We are going to be uh, go, kind of going through this, like she said, in our personal quiet times. We've got daily devotional and readings that, that go throughout the week. We've got growth groups that are going to be focused on that. And Sunday mornings, we are going to be spending time all walking through this biblical book of Luke and helping you and hopefully all of us to really get uh, grow a deeper understanding, a deeper passion, a deeper love, and really even encounter Jesus in the pages of this book. So I'm super glad that you're here for sort of the kickoff of this 40-day uh, journey uh, together. I think it's going to be a life-changing sort of deal for those of us that, that come to uh, that, that come to God and open up God's book with sort of open hearts and uh, come teachable, come hungry, come looking for God even in the pages of this book. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm convinced that it's going to be a life-changing sort of deal, so I would encourage you to journey with us um, through this. Today, I just want to kind of do an intro uh, to, the, to the book of Luke a little bit, and then get a, I want us to get a snapshot of, of sort of who Luke says Jesus is, sort of uh, who Jesus is through the eyes of of Luke as we start out this journey together. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to bring it um, every Sunday uh, as we kind of walk through this kind of thing together. If you don't have one, we've got a bunch on the back table. We'd encourage you to take one. You can take it home with you, uh, read it. But but uh, it's one of those things that I think it'll be it'll be powerful as we read through Luke together. I'd encourage you to bring your Bibles every week to read through them during the week. Maybe you can uh, you know go ahead if there's something that strikes you, circle it. Sometimes I'll put dates and stuff in my Bible where I feel like God spoke specifically to me. You kind of jot a note or something in there if there's something that you want to be able to refer back to. I, I know especially when I first became a believer, and this is still true of me now, sometimes I can remember where it is in my Bible because I underline it even if I can't remember the verse, right? Kind of thing. And so that's that's helpful. Sometimes you underline it and it helps you to be able to go back to there and find it later uh, when, when uh, it might be particularly pertinent to you. But today I want to look at two different passages in the first four chapters of the book of Luke. The first, the first place we're going to start is right away, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to look at the first four verses because this is sort of Luke's introduction to the book. He kind of gives us in there his purpose statement of why, from a human perspective, why he is writing this book and what we can hope to get out of it. Okay? Make sense? So Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, by the way, if you, if you typically use your phone or whatever, we'd encourage you as well to download the Ignite Church app. If, you, if you've done that, you can click on message notes in the Ignite Church app, and it will give you all these scriptures as well. Notes, it will help you to follow along, and uh, even some links that you can use later. But anyway, Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, listen to this. Luke starts out, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those uh, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, <laughs> so that you may, listen to this, so that, this is the purpose, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. All right, a couple of background pieces here from these first four verses that will be helpful, I think, for us to understand all of the book. Uh, of what it's about, all of the book of Luke. First of all, it's written as as you would guess by the, the, the title of the book. It's written by 
Luke, I am your father, right? Luke, it's written by Luke. Uh, and it's written to a Gentile friend of his by the name of Theophilus, right? We don't really know that much about Theophilus. There's been a whole bunch of speculation. We don't know other than it's a friend. He's probably not a Jew from what we can gather. Luke is, is the only writer of the New Testament. He's the only gospel writer, and as far as we know, the only New Testament writer that was a non-Jew. He was a Gentile himself. He was an outsider, and so he writes his gospel from that kind of perspective. You'll, in fact, you'll see, this is one of the themes that we'll see throughout the book. Uh, if, if ever there was an encounter that Jesus had with somebody that was sort of on the fringes of society, Luke will mention it. If ever there was a time where Jesus had an interaction with somebody uh, that was an outsider, that was a non-Jew, he'll mention it. If ever there was somebody, a, a woman or a child or something, something like that, somebody that would have, in that day, would have been considered sort of a second-class citizen, Luke will highlight it because Jesus did not treat them like second-class citizens, did he? Because he said, man, this is where it's at. In fact, we'll get to that later, but oh, great stuff. So Luke is always looking through that lens of he was an outsider and has now been brought inside through Christ. And so he, he always highlights some of those kinds of things. Um, pretty amazing kind of stuff. Well, he, he also says in these verses that he has done a, a bunch of research. Uh, scholars... Uh, Scholars have reported that he's a good friend of the Apostle Paul, and you can kind of see crossover uh, in their writings back and forth. He was so undoubtedly he's done some eyewitness work. He's talked to Paul about his own experience with Jesus. He's talked to other gospel writers. He's he references even other books of the Bible, especially the the uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he'll, he'll reference as part of his sources. He's done all this investigative work. He's talked to eyewitnesses, and now he's putting together an account, an orderly account, a well researched account and he says I've done this for one specific reason I've done this so that you may know with certainty the things that you've been taught isn't that cool so you can know with certainty he's like I want this to I want I want this to grow your faith he's saying I want you to know with certainty who Jesus is I want you to know with certainty that Jesus is not just a good teacher he is a good teacher don't get me wrong. He's a good, very good teacher. But I want you to know with certainty that he is the Savior. He's the one that has come to rescue us. I want you to know with certainty that he's not some dead guy that lived 2,000 years ago. I want you to know with certainty that he is alive. This is real, he said, man. This is real. And I'm writing this book so that you can know with certainty Jesus. I want you, I want you to get to know him and experience. Him. I want you to encounter him, and I want you to have great confidence in faith in what has been written, that it's true. It's real. It's life-changing if you'll, if you'll encounter him, if you'll experience him. So he writes down this orderly account for that purpose. Uh, interestingly enough, Luke is half a book. Did you know that? It is an incomplete book. Actually, there's, it's, two it's one half of a whole book, which is Luke and Acts together form one book. He puts his writings, he divides them up. Luke is focused on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, right? It focuses around his saving work for the world. And starting with Acts, picks up where Luke, like Luke, where say that stops off, ends off? Leaves, when it leaves off, there it is, uh, where he le where it leaves off and shows the resurrected Jesus, the mission he gives to the church and how his church lives that out. It's two halves of a whole book that is packed 
with life change, with healing, with good news that goes out to the world, with life-changing encounters that people have with Jesus, and the way uh, the Holy Spirit comes, empowers uh, his church to, to live this out and take this message about Jesus to the world. It is an incredible read. It's going to be a fun ride. I hope you join us for the whole thing. Uh, another just quick little tidbit that I'll mention, uh, the, the date of this, um, this writing, especially Luke, is around 60 to 64 AD. Um, there's, uh, there's some historically uh, verifiable reasons to, to date it that early. I'm not going to get into a lot of them today, but, but uh, we've got actual fragments and documents that are from the first century that, that date Luke and put Luke in squarely in the first century within the lifetime of eyewitnesses within the lifetime of disciples within the li lifetime why is that significant well it's significant because you can't just make something up if people were there and saw it for themselves right because if, if that were if that if, if he was to to forge something or to whatever else people would have called him on it in that very first century it the writing would have never made it out of the first century you with me even that, even the dating of it, is reason that we can have confidence, that we can know with certainty the things that have been passed down to us in the lifetime of those first eyewitnesses. Okay, verse 4 again tells us the purpose, so that we can have certainty in the things that we have been taught. He wants us to know that it's true, it's life-changing, the stuff about Jesus. Because of that, you'll notice as we kind of read through the Gospel of Luke over these next uh, 40 days or so, you'll notice that Luke also includes all kinds of dates, names, towns. He gives us genealogy. Some of those things that when you're reading through a Gospel or you're reading through a book, your eyes may start rolling back in your head a little bit. You're thinking, why in the world would you give us all of these details? Why do I need to know who was the father of who and all this kind of stuff? And I'll tell you why. Again, don't forget what the purpose of Luke is. I'll tell you why. It's because those are all those little tidbits, those little bits of data and names and dates and, and uh, lineage, all that kind of stuff. It's, those are historically verifiable sort of pieces of information. Again, he's telling us those things so that we can have certainty that it's true. This stuff isn't just made up. This isn't just stuff that was written by somebody centuries after, right? He's saying, no, these are things you can go back and check. And you know what? People have gone back and checked. They've checked in the historical record. They've checked the archaeological record. You know what they found? They found it's true. The stuff is real. The names and the dates, the people, the places that get mentioned to a T. It's the, I mean, it's mind-boggling how accurate uh, God's book is, right? It's, it's mind-boggling how careful Luke especially is to mention all these kinds of things. Again, he's doing it so that we can have great confidence in God's word, so that we can have great faith in who Jesus is, and so that you and I can actually meet Jesus in the pages of this book and be transformed by him. Why? Because although Luke was the, the uh, human author, the reality is that this is no human writing. The, the reality is that this is God-breathed, that God was behind the writing of this book. It is uncanny, and I think uh, as you read through, I wonder if you won't come to the same conclusion. 
Over the next 40 days, we are going to invite you to read through the pages of this book on your own in order that you too can meet Jesus, in order that you too can have greater certainty of who Jesus is and of his unbelievable plans, his amazing plans for you. This morning, I want us to look at just one other passage. It, stems, it comes straight from Luke 4, where the author, Luke, introduces us, really, to Jesus and gives us a snapshot of Jesus' first public teaching of Jesus in a synagogue. Because this, uh, this, th these four verses that we're going to kind of zero in on, this, this quick little passage gives us a very clear picture of Jesus' purpose, of why it was that he came Again, through Luke's eyes and through Luke's perspective, of a very clear picture of what, what it is that, that Luke wants to communicate about why Jesus came, about why he's there, about what he wants to do in our lives, and uh, about his good and perfect plans for the world. It's found in four verses. There's four things we're going to look at. But this is really sort of a foreshadowing of what we'll see throughout the entire entirety of Luke's gospel. In other words, we're going to see Jesus... Jesus says, I came for these four reasons, and you want to know what? If you start keep reading throughout the book of Luke, you're going to see these four things over and over and over and over and over. You'll see the purpose of Jesus lived out in the world. If you keep reading in Acts, you'll see these things imparted to the people, and they are sent out to live these things out in a very real and a very powerful way. So we're going to go to Luke 4, um, starting verse 16, and we're going to read about this encounter. Jesus stands up again. Uh, he's in his hometown of Nazareth. He stands up in the, uh, in the synagogue and he teaches for the first time. And this is what happens. Verse 16 says, he went to Nazareth. He, Jesus, went to, to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Can I hit the pause button for one second and say, think about that. Jesus, the Savior of the world, was in the custom of going to church. He was in the custom. It was his habit. Do you think he always agreed with everything that happened there? No. In fact, we'll see uh, very clearly he does. Were there, would there be, I mean, he was God himself. Would there be plenty of reasons to say, you know, I think I'm going to sleep in this one. Crazy. I just, I mean, I read this and I think, I mean, even Jesus was like, he was like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church. I'm going to be there every week. I'm going to be there to worship God. I'm going to be there to connect with my father. Isn't that crazy? Savior of the world, God himself, was in the habit of going to church. Okay, unpause. It says, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Enrolling it, he found the place where it's written. Listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. Now, this, the majority of this quote is, is primarily from Isaiah 61, and it was written about somebody that the Jews called the Messiah. Right? It means literally the anointed one. Somebody that was supposed to come from God and was going to bring salvation and hope and life and freedom to the people. The people of Israel had been waiting, right? They'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for this Messiah that was supposed to come. They'd been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
They've been waiting for this Messiah, this Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, this chosen one that was supposed to come from God. And here Jesus is in his first public message. He stands up in a Tony Stark kind of way. He says, I am Iron Man, right? He says, that's me today. This is fulfilled in your midst. He's like, you've been waiting for this one that was going to come from God. And let me tell you today, that, that, that prophecy that was written in Isaiah 61, he's like, I'm here to tell you, it's me. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. And he goes on and he quotes it, and he quotes four things. Uh, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He's anointed me. I'm the anointed one. I'm the Messiah, the one sent from God. And I have come as Messiah to do four things. I've come to bring, and I'm just going to kind of walk through them today. I've come to bring good news, hope, and salvation to the poor. Right? Jesus starts out, again, quoting Isaiah 61, saying, I've been sent, I've had the Spirit poured out on me so that I can bring good news to the poor. I've come to bring good news to the most vulnerable, to those that are broken, to those who need it most. I've got good news. He's basically saying, there is hope because I have come for them. There is hope because God has heard their cry. God has seen their waiting and he has sent them a savior. There is hope because the Messiah, the savior has come for you if you are poor. I've come to bring you back to God. I've come to make you new. I've come to fill you up in ways you can't imagine. I've come to breathe hope back into their lungs. I have come to give them what they need most. You know, it's Jesus proclaiming here that uh, he has come and, and poverty will be wiped out, will be no more. Is that what he's saying? Is that what he's getting at? No. Though, of course, as you read through the pages of this book, do you see God's heart and Jesus' heart for those living in poverty, for those that are on the fringe, for those? Absolutely. You see it again and again and again and again. But he's using imagery here. He uses the poor intentionally. He's referring to people that realize that they are in need. People who are dependent on something outside of themselves to give them what they most need. He's referring to people who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt on their own. They're in need of saving and they know it. They are in need of a savior. They know that they just can't take care of everything on their own. But it requires more than they've got. They are in need of saving. Listen to this. We're going to cross this quote from John Stott who says this. I thought he said it really well. He says, the kingdom of God, right, meaning literally life with God is given to the poor, but not to the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to little children humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their own powers. In our Lord's own day, it was not the Pharisees, not the religious leaders of that day who entered into God's kingdom, who thought they were so rich, so rich, in fact, uh, that they thank God for their attainments. No, he says. The kingdom instead is offered to sinners and to prostitutes, to the rejects of human society who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing to a, and achieve nothing on their own. All they could do was cry out for, for God to God for mercy. And he heard, he heard their cry. Still today, he says, the indispensable condition of receiving the kingdom of God, receiving that life with God, is to acknowledge our own spiritual poverty. He says God still sends the rich away empty. He says, I have good news for the poor, for those that realize 
they've got nothing on their own. He says, I have good news. There is hope because I have come for the likes of you. There is hope because I have come for those that are who realize my life is so messed up, I can't do a thing to straighten out. I need you, Jesus. He says, man, give me some people like that. There is great hope. There is salvation awaiting you. I have good news. The ironic thing is if you read this story through, and hopefully you will this week, I'll, I'll tell you what, Jesus' message, Jesus' teaching here is sort of like a snowplow, one of those, those big ones that ha has like a, it's like a wedge, you know what I mean? Like it has a point in the middle and it goes off both sides. It throws people into one camp or the other because there were religious leaders in the crowd that day. And by the end of this passage, by the end of this teaching, especially because Jesus does some tweaking and, and clarifies who the poor really are. By the end of this, the religious leaders are trying to kill him. Jesus is saying, I have good news for those of you that recognize you are in need. And to people who, 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 who like to consider themselves up here, right? And they like to look down their noses at everybody else. They're like, well, I am, I'm up here. I'm so glad I'm not like those pond scum people over there. Right? I'm so glad that my that I'm superior in some ways to those kind of people. They hated Jesus. You want to know why? Because there was not good news for them. You'll see this 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 uh, kind of focus throughout the pages of Luke. Really good news to the poor, to those that thought they had it all together on their own, to thought they thought they were strong enough to take care of business right on their own. And they end up finding themselves on the opposite side of Jesus time and time and time again. But he says, you know what? For those that recognize who are humble enough to receive it, there's salvation waiting. There's hope despite any circumstance. There is good news. Do you hear it? There's good news. Second thing. We'll get to it. He says, there's freedom that's available. He sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoner and to set the oppressed people living under oppression. I've come to set them free. I've come to set them free. You know, we like to think of ourselves as being freedom-loving and freedom-living kind of people, but the truth that God teaches us throughout the pages of his book is that on our own, we are poor. On our own, all of us are enslaved. We are imprisoned by sin. We are desperately in need of something and someone that can set us free. The Bible teaches us that we are enslaved to whatever has mastered us. We are enslaved, some of us, to things like anger, to things like lust. Some of us are enslaved to drugs or alcohol or sex. Some of us may be enslaved to generational sort of patterns relationally that have been passed down to us and we don't even know we're doing it, but we just live in this, and it does, it wreaks havoc on our relationships. It brings destructions to our relationships over and over and over. Some of us, I think, maybe are, uh, are stuck in things like depression, and we don't know how we can ever get out. We just kind of keep downward spiral going. And more than anything else, we need to be free. We're looking and craving and yearning to be able to throw off that kind of stuff. 
on our own, the Bible teaches we are enslaved by sin and by brokenness, enslaved by our past, enslaved by all kinds of things. But Jesus says, man, I have good news for you today. I have good news. I have come to set you free from all that enslaves I have come to set you free from sin. I have come to liberate you from some of that generational sin, some of those patterns and ruts and addictions. Jesus says, I have come to set you free. And he does it all the time. I hear stories virtually every week about people that have opened up their hearts and lives to Christ. And he has freed them in ways that they couldn't have even imagined before. He has brought transformation. He's brought liberation to their souls. He's breathed life into their lungs when they thought they were dead. Because that's what he does. Because that's who he is. He says, there is good news this morning because I've come to breathe, to breathe freedom and to bring freedom to those who need it most. Reminds me of a real-life example. I shared this with you a couple years ago, but I kept thinking about it all week. It's a true story by, about a guy by the name of Billy Moore. Says this, Billy grew up in a tough city in Ohio in an impoverished family. He got involved with crime when he was really young, really young. He and his friends would do drugs, they'd get drunk or whatever, and then they'd go and break into taverns and they would steal money out of cash registers. Or they'd break into cigarette machines in that day, all kinds of petty theft kind of things. And then one day he joined the army, he got married. Eventually his wife left him, took their only kid with, him, with her. And uh, he was broke, he was desperate, he was depressed. And that led him down a very dark path. One night, he and a friend were drinking. They were shooting up and stuff, talking about how broke they were. And this friend of his says, you know, I, I know of a guy not far from here that uh, doesn't really believe in banks. He keeps all of his money with him in his, in his bedroom. And Billy said, well, is he, is he like a big guy? Is he tough? Is he, you know, he said, no, no, he's, he's like a lamb. He wouldn't hurt a flea. And so this plot began to hatch in Billy's mind. He went back to the barracks, he got his gun, he loaded it. He drove to the man's house, he broke in, and he started ransacking the place. Now put yourself in the position of this elderly gentleman. He's 77 years old. He's in his bedroom. He hears somebody break in through his front door. He hears the noise, and he's afraid. He doesn't know what to do, and then he remembers, I have a shotgun that I use for hunting. And so he goes, he gets the gun, he loads it, and as soon as Billy comes through his bedroom door, he takes aim and pulls the trigger. Now, he's old, he's shaken, he wasn't thinking clearly, it's the middle of the night, he misses him entirely. The buckshot goes over Billy's shoulder, but Billy, then what does he do? He grabs his pistol, he points it at him, and he pulls the trigger twice. The man falls to the ground dead. Billy Moore goes through, ransacks the place, searches the man, grabs all the cash he can. He ends up with $5,600, and he flee, floods, uh, flees, we'll say, <laughs> flees uh, and goes to his trailer in rural Georgia. Now, it didn't take long for the police to track him down. He was not uh, a very clever criminal. They arrested him, and they took him to jail. You can just imagine that first night he's sitting alone in his cell realizing his life is over. There's nothing. This was a capital murder. There's an electric chair awaiting him from this point forward. There is no hope. Well, Billy's mom was a Christian. She was a Christ follower. And she knew of another Christ following couple who lived not far from the jail that he was, he was in. And she called him and said, you know, I've got a son. He's been charged with a death penalty. Uh, he's on death row. Would you please go and visit him? So they went. 
And they visited Billy Moore in jail. He sat down and they told him about Jesus. They told him that there was a savior that was willing to give him a fresh start and a new chance at life. And Billy looked back at him just dumbfounded and said, you have got to be kidding me. Don't you realize my situation here? I murdered an old grandpa. I am charged with the death penalty case. My life is over. There is no hope. There is no fresh start for me. But that Christian man looked back over at Billy Moore and said, no, you're the one that doesn't understand. Jesus Christ loves you so much. He loves you so much. He wants to adopt you as, a son, as his son. He wants to lift the burden of guilt off your shoulders, and he wants to set you free. In fact, Christ loves you so much that he wants to find a way even to make your life count, even in here. Billy not only heard those words from this man and woman, but he saw Jesus in them. He said later, nobody had ever told me that Jesus loved me before. Nobody had ever told me that Jesus had died for me. He says, it was a love that I could tangibly feel in that moment. A love that I wanted. A love that I needed. And so Billy Moore, as hopeless and broken as an individual that you're ever going to see, got down on his knees in his jail cell and said, God, you know, are you telling me that you want to adopt the likes of me? That you want to forgive the likes of me? You want to set me free? Well, if you want to do that, then have at it, God. So, you know, forgive me for screwing up my life so bad. I'm sorry for all I've done. And I want to live for you. And then he goes on and says, you know, adopt me. Take me into heaven. If you could do that, that would be amazing. And he says, I don't know if... You can do anything with the time I have left, but if you want to use me and could make my life count and mean something, then that would just be icing on the cake. Well, Jesus heard that prayer. He ends up baptizing. He ends up getting baptized. It's the day of his baptism. He's there on the left. You see him? His face is lit up. They actually got a bathtub out in death row. They filled it up with water and baptized Billy Moore as he as he as his life was being transformed by Jesus, as he was passing from death to life, as he was being set free from all the stuff that plagued him, the stuff that he had carried around with him his entire life. God began to change this man from the inside out. Billy went to court. He pleaded guilty. He said, how can I tell you that I didn't do it when I clearly did? They found him guilty, sentenced him to death. Now, the criminal justice system is pretty slow, so he had to wait 16 years on death row. It took 16 years of living in a cage, waiting to die. But during those years, Billy opened up his heart and his life to God, and God transformed him in amazing ways. He set him free in amazing ways. Billy became a model prisoner, so much so that the guards had a nickname for him. They started calling him the Peacemaker. <laughs> Imagine, convicted murderer on death row. They nicknamed him the Peacemaker. Death Row was known for being an ugly, forsaken, violent, and hateful place until Billy Moore got there. Billy had Bible studies with the other inmates, and one by one, these other convicted murderers and criminals found hope and redemption and new life through Christ. It began to change the very fabric and foundation and culture on Death Row. This place that had been awful and violent became a place of hope where people cared about each other. In August of 1990, the court system finally caught up with Billy Moore. The Supreme Court said that it was time for him to die. The hours were ticking down to August 22nd when they, when they would kill him. He was put in the death watch cell, which is where they put guys uh, in the last hours of their life. 
His lawyers would call him and would later comment to a reporter, it was the strangest thing I've ever experienced. We would call to console him, but he would end up consoling us. Billy would say things like, are you guys doing okay? Are you coping? I know this has got to be so hard for you. Are there any ways that I could pray for you? It's going to be okay. He's like, the reporters were like, we were trying to reach out to him, and he ended up reaching out to us. Why? Because Billy Moore was not afraid to face death. He was not afraid to meet Jesus Christ face to face. Because he knew that if God loved him so much that he wanted to adopt him, that he had died for him, that he could forgive him for all of his sins, then he said, you know what? I can trust that when I close my eyes in that electric chair as I die, that he'll take care of me forever. On August 21st, 1997, and a half hours before Billy was to be electrocuted, something amazing took place, something unprecedented in American history. The Georgia Pardon and Parole Board held an emergency meeting. They discussed and remembered that he had been a model prisoner. They heard about the life change and the freedom that had come to his life. They looked at Billy Moore and they said, you know what? We are going to show him mercy. They gave him a stay of execution and not just a stay of execution. But again, they did something that had never been done before. They started the process of releasing him. Is that not incredible? This once convicted murderer was now set free. And in fact, if you look at what he's doing now, look at this next picture. He's a pastor. You believe that? He's a pastor at a local church. And he, every week he gives up, gets up and he proclaims that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how bad the sin no matter how much the downward spiral has you sucked in, no matter how much you may think that your life is over, that there is hope and there is new life, there is freedom available because that's who Jesus is, because that's what he does. He does it over and over. He did it in Billy Moore. He's done it in my life. He's done it in some of your lives. He transforms. He breathes hope and new life. He cuts the ties to the past. He walks people out of addictions. He sets people free. It's who he is. It's what he does. I wonder if there's some of us that need to experience freedom like that today. I wonder if some of us need to be reminded that there is hope, that there is good news for us when we have none. Because Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior has come. Third one, I'll hit this one real quick. Third piece uh, is healing, right? Third thing, Jesus says, he says, I've come to bring recovery of sight to the blind. I've come to bring healing. He's saying, I've come to help people who are blind regain their sight. Now, again, is Jesus primarily talking about physically blind people? No. But Jesus does heal people that are blind, too, right? I mean, these are all sort of blueprints to the Messiah, you know, kind of a, a snapshot of what he's going to look like. And Jesus fulfills all of them. He brings healing to people that have never seen before. He sets people free physically. He, I mean, he does all kinds of stuff. But, but again, as you read through the, the book of Luke, even as you read through the book of Acts, you see something, uh, kind of a broader kind of application of this kind of thing. You see people that were clueless before to Jesus and to the life that he had for them. And you see them, all of a sudden they can see and their lives are transformed. They find healing and forgiveness and new life in Christ. In fact, if you read in the book of Acts, you keep going, you read about this guy by the name of Saul, right? Saul who hated Jesus, didn't he? He hated, he used to try and kill him, get him arrested. Anybody that was a follower of Jesus, he would go after them. So he hated him. All of a sudden, he has a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus, 
And uh, a few days later, scales fall from his eyes. And all of a sudden he sees, man, I have wasted my life. The very person that I was fighting is the very one that I needed. The, the, the one that I, was, I, that I was blind to has given me sight, has transformed my life. And now I'm, he's, I, I can see that he's God. I can see that he's my savior. I can see he's the one I need. And that's kind of what, what, what Jesus is getting at here as well, right? It's not just a physical healing. It's not just the eyes that were healed, but it's opening up eyes uh, and minds to a new and better way to live. Like Billy Moore's story we just read, right? We see healing take place. We see uh, in his soul, we see his eyes opened uh, to a new way of life. And again, I wonder if there's any of us here that need to experience healing, a healing touch of Jesus, either physically or spiritually. I wonder if there's any, any of us here that need to have our eyes opened from our current reality into to his kingdom, into the life that he has for us, to something new. What if our eyes need to be opened to the hope, into the life, into the wisdom that he has for us? I think so. The fourth one uh, I'll hit is a new and better kingdom, sort of the year of jubilee kind of analogy. This one has a ton to it. We could spend a whole week talking about this. But Jesus says that he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's referring to this Old Testament concept, the year of jubilee. It's basically this every 50th year in, in, in the nation of Israel was known as the year of jubilee. And it was kind of a time of universal redemption. The year of Jubilee involved a year uh, of release from indebtedness of all types, a year of release from bondage. All prisoners and captives were set free. All slaves were released. All debts were forgiven. Can you imagine, by the way? Any debt you have, gone. It was amazing. A year, of, uh, an amazing year. All property was returned to its original owners in that year. In addition, all labor was to cease for one year, it was a year off of work. Those bound by labor contracts were released from them. One of the benefits, one author said, one of the benefits of this year of Jubilee was that both the land and the people were able to rest. That amazing picture. And so Jesus shows up and he starts proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. You want to know what's going on in people's minds? They're thinking year of Jubilee. It's a pic That's the picture that would jump into their minds. A picture of rest. A picture of freedom, a picture of forgiveness, of debts wiped out. And Jesus is saying, you know what? That's sort of like what I have come to do, except it's not just a once every 50 years kind of thing. But he's giving us a picture of what life is like with him. Right? He's saying, this is what life is like in my kingdom. I've come to proclaim that there is jubilee available to you in the here and now for those that would come and follow, for those that would enter into my kingdom. A year of forgiveness where debts are paid off. A year where there's great joy, where there's peace and rest for your souls. You know, it's interesting. I don't, uh, I don't know that we typically think of living life with God and we think of things like jubilee. It's not really a word that we associate with that. I think oftentimes when we think of uh, life God's way, we start thinking of rules, right, and regulations. We start thinking of wait, like do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. But you know what? That's not the way it gets painted in the book of Luke. It's not the way it gets painted in the Bible, really. In fact, there is one word. It's, it's a theme in Luke that you'll see over and over and over again where there is the presence of Jesus, right, where there is uh, the kingdom of God, you know, you know what word he associates with that most? Joy. Joy. He's like, it's better 
than you can imagine. There is life. I mean, again, you got to remember, Luke was an outsider. He remembers what life was like, separated from God. And yet, he had come to encounter Christ for himself. And, and, and the only word he can use to describe what it's like now, for him now to follow Jesus, what it's like for the world to follow Jesus, is joy. It's like life in God's kingdom, it's just good. It's better. Is there, are there hard seasons? Of course there are. But he's like, you know what? I would not trade it for anything. The word he used to describe is joy. That is the Jesus that you and I encounter as we read through the book of Luke. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that's filled with God's spirit so that he can proclaim hope and good news to those who need it most. To proclaim freedom for those that are trapped by their sin and addiction and junk from their past. Healing and illumination to those who need to see or experience his healing touch. And new life in his kingdom. A year of jubilee, if you will. This is the majority of what we'll read as we kind of walk our way through the book of Luke. There is good news awaiting you. That there's, there's hope and healing and freedom and new life in his kingdom awaiting you. If you'll come to him and you'll enter in and read through and experience him in the pages of this book. If you'll come hungry and expectant and ready to meet with him. If you'll come ready to put his teachings into practice. If you come ready to open your heart and to put your faith in this Jesus and to follow him like this. Man, I really believe if you and I will do that, that he will meet us there, that he will speak, that he will transform, that he'll heal and bring freedom and new life to our souls. There is good stuff in store. If you've read it before, awesome. Read it again. You can meet him there. He will speak to you in powerful ways. If you've never read it before, this is the perfect time to get on board and read through this gospel of Luke. Open up your heart and your soul and say, man, I want to get to know you, Jesus the pages of this book. Would you speak to me? Would you lead me? Would you open my eyes to see you more? Would you bring healing in me? Would you bring good news and hope to my soul? Because I need it. I need it. And would you teach me how to walk and into the life in your kingdom? Life with you that you have, that you've made me for. I hope you'll take this journey with us. There's a couple things I'm just going to do. This is the only application for the week. Pretty straightforward. We spend a ton of time putting together uh, daily devotionals for you, and there's one of these for each one of you today. I hope you'll take it. We would like 100% of our people to walk through Luke with, it, with us. It's, it's super easy. The bar is not, like, unreachable. It's reading less than a chapter a day. It's taking five to ten minutes. We've put the scripture down. We've, we've got a couple of questions, reflection questions, to get you thinking about what does this say? What does it mean? What is it? And then some application. What does it mean to me? How can I put this into practice today? How can I live out the truth of the scripture? And then even we've got sort of some prayer prompts at the bottom. If you want to just pray what's there, you can do that. If you want to use that to sort of engage and get you praying along those lines, that would be awesome. We're doing this as a way just to say, you know, I, I get that we're busy. I know you're busy. I'm busy. We're all busy. And so often we get so busy that we miss Jesus in the day-to-day. -day. We keep from growing. We keep from recognizing his presence and his leading during our day. And so we're saying, man, what if for 40 days, what if for six weeks between now and Easter Sunday, what if you and I were to carve out just five to ten minutes a day to grow in our faith? That we can have greater confidence 
in his word, that we could come to know Jesus, that we could experience him in the pages of this book? What if we could spend five to ten minutes being directed by him, that our days would be ordained and directed by him, and we could recognize his, his spirit's leading and prompting, and that we could obey with his help and follow and experience life in his kingdom? Friends, I'd encourage you to do whatever it takes. Take one of these home with you, and then starting tomorrow, we've got five a week, right? It's not, it's not so bad. Five a week, we figure that uh, they're Sunday, and we've got a, a growth group curriculum as well. But that, that gives you just five to ten minutes a day for the next six weeks. Would you take the challenge? Would you encounter and experience Jesus more? And that takes us to the second thing is the growth group deal. If you are not currently in a growth group, uh, I encourage you to sign up today. We've got a bunch of, of, I think there's five different growth groups out on the table. Find one, there, four or five different nights of the week. Find a time that works for you. And for the next six weeks, for six sessions, would you join us? Again, we've written this curriculum just to help help you experience more of Jesus uh, in, in the book of Luke, you know, through the book of Luke. And uh, six sessions, uh, the hour and a half or two hours max probably in these in these groups, but find a night that works for you. Jump in. It's a great way to, again, to kind of keep growing in your faith, but it's also a great way to connect with some other kind of Christ followers. All right? So, and then join us back next week as we uh, take week two here on Sunday of our series called Encountering Jesus. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for coming for us as our Messiah, as our Savior, as the Chosen One. We thank you that you have come to, to proclaim good news to the poor. That you've come to bring freedom to us who need it most. Thank you that you bring healing and you open our eyes to, your, to the reality of you and, and the life in your kingdom. And thanks God that you even have ushered in a new kingdom, sort of a year of jubilee for us. God, I pray that you would help us not to miss it. I pray, God, that over these next 40 days, these next six weeks leading up to Easter, um, I pray that you would come alive in us. I pray that each day as we, as we take these steps, God, that you would quiet our heart, that you would speak to us, that we could hear you and experience you and encounter you more. Give us soft and humble hearts that, that receive your word and that put it into practice in our lives. God, teach us to do life with you. We need you and we want you. We, we just open our hearts, our lives to you. And we just say, come, Lord Jesus, come and have your way in us. We love you. We offer ourselves to you afresh in Jesus' name.